welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 15, A Written Invitation. The next day, the 9th of November, I awakened after having slept for 12 hours. Conseil came, in accordance with his wont, to ask whether Monsieur had a good night and to offer his services. He had left his Canadian friend sleeping so soundly that one would have thought he had never done anything else in his life. I let Conseil babble on as he pleased without bothering to answer him. I was preoccupied with the absence of Captain Nemo, who had not appeared during our session the day before, and whom I hoped to see that day. I put on my garments made of byssus. This fabric had more than once aroused Conseil's curiosity. I explained to him that the fabric was made from the glossy, silky threads with which certain mollusk-like animals had plentiful on the coast of the Mediterranean attached themselves to the rocks. Formerly, beautiful material had been made from these silky threads. A cloth which was both soft and warm and used for making stockings and gloves. The crew of the Nautilus used this fabric to clothe themselves and had no need for cotton plants, sheep, or silkworms. When I had dressed, I went to the big saloon. It was deserted. I immersed myself immediately in the study of the treasures of conchology displayed in the glass cases. I began to probe into the great herbals filled with the rarest marine plants. Although pressed and dried, they still retained the, their lovely colors. Among these precious hydrophytes, I found world cladostaphae, peacock patinae, Colorpae, shaped like vine leaves, Graniferous calathamnion, delicate carmiaceae, and scarlet tints, fan-shaped agars, Atacetabularia, resembling pressed mushrooms, formerly considered to be zoophytes, a complete series of algae. The whole day went by without my being honored by a visit from Captain Nemo. The panels of the saloon remained closed. Perhaps they did not want us to be surfeited with these beautiful sights of the sea. The direction of the Nautilus remained at east-northeast, her speed at 12 miles, and her depth between 150 and 180 feet. The next day, the 10th of November, I continued to be left alone in solitude. I saw no member of the crew. Ned and Conseil spent the greater part of the day with me. They, too, were surprised at the inexplicable absence of the captain. Was that strange man ill? Was he thinking of changing his plans about us? After all, as Conseil pointed out, we still enjoyed complete liberty, and we were still well-fed. Our host was keeping his side of the bargain. We could not complain. On the contrary, the peculiar nature of our situation offered us such excellent compensations that we had no right yet to criticize him. This was the day that I began to keep a diary of our adventures, which subsequently enabled me to relate these events with the most scrupulous accuracy, and, strangely enough, this diary is written on paper made from seaweed. Early in the morning of the 11th of November, the fresh air wafted through the Nautilus, telling me we had surfaced to replenish our supply of oxygen. I went to the central staircase and up to the platform. It was six o'clock. The sky was overcast and the sea gray, but calm. There was scarcely a billow. I had hoped to find Captain Nemo, but he wasn't there. Would he come? The only person I saw was the steersman in his glass cage. I sat down on the hull of the dinghy and breathed with delight the fresh breeze of the sea. Gradually, the rays of the sun rising from the eastern horizon dispelled the mist. 
The sea glowed with a resplendent trail of light. The clouds scattered in the sky were permeated with beautiful shades and tints, and numerous longs de chat, little light clouds with indented edges, forecasted a windy day. But what did the Nautilus, indifferent to storms and tempests, care about the wind? I was admiring that beautiful sunrise, so invigorating, so exhilarating, that I heard someone calling up to the platform. I prepared to greet Captain Nemo, but it was only a second-in-command who appeared. He stood on the platform, completely oblivious of my presence. With a powerful telescope at his eye, he scrutinized all points of the horizon with the greatest care. Then, having completed his observation, he approached the panel and uttered a phrase which I have remembered since it was repeated every morning under identical circumstances. Notron reproc lorne verc. I hadn't the slightest idea what it meant. Having uttered these words, the second command returned below. Then, thinking that the Nautilus was going to submerge, I went down the hatch and returned to my rooms. Five days went by without the slightest change in our situation. Every morning I went up on the platform and heard the same words spoken by the same person. There was no sign of Captain Nemo. I had resigned myself to the idea that I should never see him again when, on the 16th of November, returning to my room with Ned and Conseil, I found a note on the table addressed to me. I couldn't wait to open it. It was pinned in a clear, neat handwriting, somewhat gothic in style, reminiscent of German script. The note was addressed in the following terms. Professor Aronnax, on board the Nautilus, November 16th, 1867. Captain Nemo invites Monsieur le Professeur Aronnax and his friends to a hunting party to be held tomorrow morning in the forests of the Isles of Crespo. He hopes nothing will prevent Monsieur Aronnax and his friends from participating. The commander of the Nautilus, Captain Nemo. A hunt? cried Ned. And what's more, in the forest of the Isle of Crespo? added Conseil. Does that mean this character is going ashore? asked Ned Land. Obviously, it means just that, I said, rereading the letter. We must accept, said the Canadian. Once on terra firma, we can decide what to do. Incidentally, I shouldn't mind having a few morsels of fresh venison. Without attempting to reconcile the contradiction between Captain Nemo's obvious distaste for continents and islands and his invitation to go hunting in a forest, I replied, First of all, let us see what the Isle of Crespo is like. I consulted the planisphere and found at latitude 32 degrees 40 minutes north and longitude 167 degrees 50 minutes west, a small island visited in 1801 by Captain Crespo, marked on old Spanish maps as Roca de la Plata, that is, Silver Rock. We were, therefore, about 1,800 miles from our starting point, and the course of the Nautilus, which had been slightly changed, was bringing her back toward the southeast. I showed my companions this little rock, lost in the middle of the South Pacific. If Captain Nemo does go ashore occasionally, I said, he at least chooses deserted islands. Ned Land nodded, but he said nothing. He and Conseil then left me. After supper, served by the silent, impassive steward, I fell asleep, not without some anxiety, however. The next day, the 17th of November, when I woke up, I realized the Nautilus was motionless. I got up hurriedly and walked into the big saloon. Captain Nemo was there waiting for me. He got up, greeted me, and asked me if we were going to accompany him. As he made no reference to his absence during the week, I refrained from mentioning it and simply replied that my companions and I were ready to follow him. However, sir, I added, I would like to ask you one question. By all means, Monsieur Aronnax, if I can answer it, I will. Captain Nemo, how is it that you, who have cut yourself off completely from land, own forests on the Isle of Crespo? Professor, 
the captain replied. The force that I possess require neither the light nor the heat of the sun. They are inhabited by neither tigers nor panthers nor any other quadruped. They are known only to me. They grow excessively for my benefit. They are not terrestrial forests. They are forests that grow under the sea. Forests under the sea? I exclaimed. Yes, professor. Are you offering to take me there? Precisely, monsieur le professeur. On foot? Of course. And you will not even get your feet wet. And we will hunt at the same time? Yes, we will hunt at the same time. With gun in hand? With gun in hand, of course, monsieur. I looked at the captain of the Nautilus with an expression that was not at all flattering. He must have more than a touch of insanity, I kept thinking to myself. He had an attack that lasted a week, and he isn't quite out of it yet. What a pity, I thought. I liked him better when I thought he was a strange character than I do now. A madman. My face must have shown quite clearly what I was thinking, for Captain Nemo invited me to follow him. I did, completely resigned to any eventuality. We went into the dining room, where our lunch was already on the table. Monsieur Aranax, the captain said, I hope you don't mind sharing an informal lunch with me. We can talk while we eat. Although I promised to take you for a walk in the forest, I did not promise to take you to a restaurant there. I suggest that you have a very good lunch now, just in case we have a very late dinner. I did justice to the meal, which consisted of various fishes and slices of holothurian, excellent zoophytes, seasoned with very appetizing algae such as Orphigia laciniata and Laurentia primafetida. We drank pure water, to which Captain Nemo added a few drops of fermented liquor extracted by the Kamshacha process from a seaweed known as Rodimania palmata. Captain Nemo ate his lunch without uttering a word and then continued, Monsieur le Professeur, when I suggested that we go hunting in my forests of Crespo, you thought that I was contradicting myself. When I told you that these were submerged forests, you thought I was mad. Professor, one must never judge men too lightly. But Captain, believe me, be kind enough to listen to me and see whether you are justified in thinking me mad or accusing me of contradicting myself. I am listening. You know as well as I do, Professor, that men can live underwater provided he can carry with him a sufficient supply of breathable air. While working uh, underwater, a workman wears a waterproof garment, his head in a metal helmet, and he receives air from the outside by means of pumps equipped with proper controls. That is the equipment used by divers, I said. True, however, the diver under these conditions is not free to move. He is attached to a rubber pump that feeds him air, but which keeps him chained to the land. If we were so restricted, we of the Nautilus could not go far. And how do you manage to be free to move? By using the Rokuro de Niru's apparatus, invented by two of your countrymen. I have perfected it for my own use. This improved machine permits you to function under these new physiological conditions without suffering any organic damage whatsoever. The tank consists of a reservoir made of thick iron plates in which I can store compressed air under a pressure of 50 atmospheres. This tank is fastened to the back with straps like a soldier's pack. Its upper section is in the form of a box from which air held by a bellows-like mechanism can escape only under normal pressure. In the original Rockerol, two rubber tubes emerge from the tank and converge in a mask which encloses the nose and the mouth of the operator. One tube takes in fresh air, the other expels foul air. The breather can choose one or the other with his tongue, as he may require. But I encounter terrific pressures at the bottom of the sea, and so I have enclosed my head in a copper sphere. 
somewhat similar to that worn by divers. The two tubes, however, the intake and the output, are attached to this metal helmet. I quite agree, Captain Nemo. However, the supply of air you, you carry must soon be exhausted. As soon as it contains less than 15% oxygen, it becomes unbreathable. True, but Monsieur Aranax, the pumps of the Nautilus, as I told you, enable me to store air under considerable pressure, so the tank of this apparatus can supply breathable air for nine or ten hours. If that is the case, I have no further objections to raise, I replied, but I should like to ask you how you light up your way on the ocean bed, with a Rumkorf apparatus, which I fastened to my waist. It is composed of a Bunsen pile, which works not with potassium bichromate, which is not available, but with sodium. A coil collects the electricity that is produced and conducts it to a special lantern. In this lantern, there is a spiral glass, which contains only a residue of carbonic gas. When the apparatus is turned on, this gas becomes luminous, giving out a continuous white light. With these tools, you see, I can breathe, and I can see. Captain Nemo, your answers are so convincing that I no longer have any doubts. However, while I am forced to admit the excellence of the Rocarol and the Rumkorf equipment, I have one reservation which the guns we have to carry. These guns are not guns that use powder, replied the captain. Is it an air gun then? Of course. How could I manufacture gunpowder on board without having saltpeter, sulfur, or charcoal? Furthermore, I said to fire effectively underwater in an atmosphere 55 times denser than air, one would have to overcome considerable resistance. That could, would be no problem. Fulton invented, and Coles and Burley of England, Fusey of France, Landy of Italy have perfected a watertight gun that can fire under such conditions. But of course, not having gunpowder, my gun uses compressed air, which the pumps of the Nautilus supply in abundance. But isn't the air used up very quickly? True. But haven't I my Rocarol reservoir, which can, if necessary, supply me with more air? A tap is all we need. But you will soon see for yourself, Monsieur Aranax, that we use very little air and few bullets in these hunting expeditions. Still, it seems to me that in this semi-darkness, immersed in a liquid that is very dense compared to the atmosphere, a shot cannot carry very far, nor can it be so very deadly. Monsieur, with a gun such as mine, all hits are fatal. An animal has only to be touched, however slightly, and it drops stone dead, as if struck by lightning. How can that be? Because the bullets ejected by this gun are not ordinary bullets. They are little capsules invented by Linnea Brook, an Austrian chemist, and I have considerable supply. These glass capsules are covered with steel and weighted with a pellet of lead. They are little laden jars, highly charged with electricity. On the slightest impact, they are discharged. The animal, however powerful it may be, falls dead. Besides, they are so small that an ordinary gun can hold ten of them. I cannot think of any more objections, I replied, getting up from the table. I will get my gun and follow you wherever you go. The captain led me to the stern of the Nautilus as we passed Ned and Conseil's cabin. I called out to my two companions to follow us. We came to a compartment near the engine room where we were to put on special suits for our excursion. Questions to consider after reading. The Nautilus surfaces regularly to replenish oxygen. Professor Aronnax visits the platform to see the sun and sky each time. Why do you think he does this? What language or nationality do you think the second-in-command is? 
Do you think it's the same as Captain Nemo? Nemo explains that the hunt will be underwater in diving gear. How is the gear different from what, what we use now? Look up diving gear in the 1800s and compare the differences to Verne's imagination. Do you think Captain Nemo is a madman? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.